So first off, what is the definition of time in physics? And this is a, I want to share with you the definition that wowed me as a beginning physics undergraduate. <laughs> it is that time is defined such that physics looks simple. Um, actually, I think I added the looks. The original just said is. <laughs> and there's another addition that really should go in that it should be such that the laws of physics look locally simple. And it's those two complications that, uh, uh, in, in the end, give us a huge amount to discuss, Much of, most, nearly all of which I'll leave to later speakers. Uh, but what, what's the simplest interpretation of this? Of course, it, it, it's simple clocks. So uh, the, what the Greeks had sundials, the, the Romans had water clocks. Uh, the hourglass has got great antiquity and is actually a fabulously reliable clock, as long as you remember to turn it over when it's <laughs> strange. Um, coming f further forward to, to more modern times, the, the pendulum clock, of course. Uh, what's special about all of these things, um, to given a bit of help in the case of the water clock and the hourglass, uh, is the notion that they appear to keep a constant time by themselves. That is, they repeat and repeat and repeat, and you take each repetition to take the same time. Now, of course, that, that's a very interesting assertion, and I say it's part of demanding that the, the laws of physics look simple. You don't have to make that assumption if you want to make something else look simple. So if you're a Roman, divide and conquer. You divide and conquer time. So uh, first the day, well, that clearly divides into two halves across the meridian. Uh, as you can work out when the sun's at the highest point, roughly. Uh, indeed, they invested a lot of effort in trying to do that accurately. Uh, and as things progressed, they, the Romans had got the day divided into 12 hours. But this was division. Uh, so. When the Roman legions got into Scotland, they did note that these summer hours were tediously long. <laughs> and the winter hours were very short. Uh, um, but for, so it's interesting that they, they well, they, they had clocks anyway, but they, they clearly had this notion that there was a physical time that wasn't operating uh, uh, such that the day was a fixed length of time. They, they clearly had the, had could separate that notion of social time from this notion of physical time. Uh, if you dig down, what is it that a physicist is really, really leaning on here? And it is the idea that the, the laws of motion should be autonomous. By which, now, uh, this might seem to be represent quantum mechanics, but that don't, I'm not trying to be quantum mechanical here. I'm just saying there is something we we carry, which encodes the state of the system at time t. Now, by the end, I, I will want to slightly disown at time t beyond matters local. But let's, for sake of the example, so we, we have the state of the system at time t. And uh, your job as a physicist is to, to understand uh, where that system will get to at the next, at some forwards time, t plus a bit which physicists can't resist denoting as delta t. Uh, so there has to be some 
update rule, which tells you the change. And that's the law of motion. Uh, and the notion that the law of motion is autonomous is that this update rule should depend upon the state the system started in and how far forwards in time you're trying to go, but not the absolute time. Now, of course, conditions would be different at different times, uh, but if that's true, uh, if this is supposed to be the, your full, the laws of physics in their full glory, then the update of those conditions should be written into the update rule. Right? So, uh, for example, the universe might be expanding. Well, part of this update rule should tell you the universe is expanding, uh, and the rate at which it's expanding should be computed from the current state of the universe. Uh, it might be getting darker. Well, you know, that, that's all to do with the motion of, and rotation of the Earth about the Sun. Uh, that's all part of the update rules of planetary motion. So this is the notion of an autonomous dynamics, and, and this is what underpins these repetitious systems of <coughs> clocks. There is a fundamental standard for measuring time. It's no longer a pendulum clock. It's now the, the, op, the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the uh, ground state of the, of the cesium atom. Um, it, this is just really a, a nuclear oscillator. Atomic nucleus is well isolated from its surroundings, so it's a nice reproducible oscillator. And that's been our standard of time since, since 1967. Uh, it's just got, of course, a rather shorter period than a convenient length pendulum, so actually the second isn't one oscillation of it, it's now 9192631770 oh, periods of oscillation of that standard clock. Uh, and this really is the definition. There are no decimal points, decimal places to be added to that. That is the agreed definition of unit of time. Uh, and here's roughly speaking how, what, schematically, how one of these cesium clocks works. Uh, you, you ascend in a molecular beam of cesium atoms, uh, and you tune a microwave system to resonance with those atoms, with the, exit, the, the vibration of those atoms. So that, that's really all you're doing. This is a standard uh, lock-in amplifier, really. Uh, and here's one of the first practical ones. I think that one comes from National Physical Laboratory. Uh, and these days, uh, if you want to time your missile launches correctly, uh, work out your GPS positions, uh, source your GPS positioning signals accurately, then you can go to these sorts of people and buy off the shelf uh, a cesium standard clock system. People don't always use the cesium one. There are lots of secondary standards. You don't need it quite as accurately, but you want it you know, in a slightly smaller box. <laughs> so that's a rubidium standard there. Uh, the point is that this fundamental standard of time is not just exotic, it's part of, it underpins serious commercial activity. We really care about how accurately we can measure it. Uh, my phone, roughly speaking, can pinpoint me to this room by GPS, and it does that by comparing the timings of signals received from different GPS satellites and taking differences. Uh, it relies on those satellites uh, knowing very accurately where their uh, uh, intended 
time information. Um, I want to go on to talk about space-time and here the, the interaction of how we talk about time and how we talk about length is really, really important. Uh, so length and the speed of light. Now, here is now the international standard of length. A meter is the length of the path travelled by light in vacuum during a time interval of fraction of 1 in 299792458 of a second. And this is now the international standard. And again, there are no decimal points to be added. So what, we, what this means is that we fixed the speed of light. I mean, you just invert that number. And that, that, that definition uh, says the speed of light is, is by definition nearly 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second, but exactly that integer number of meters per second. With, with again, no further decimal places to be added. And now, if I just back up and say this in a slightly different way, alternatively, there's this unit, the, I'll, I'll say it, I'll give it away, the light second. It's the length traveled by light in one second. That's just a variation on this definition to get rid of this silly number of 2996 digits. Then the speed of light would be expressed exactly as one light second per second. So that, this is how seriously we have taken in physics the idea that length and time are all intermixed. And the, the speed that we observe as speed of light is simply a, the ratio between the, the, the rather arbitrary everyday base units that we use. And that having chosen an arbitrary unit for the second, one cycle of that cesium clock, uh, it, if we'd only chosen the unit of length as the distance traveled by light in one second, rather than in that crazy fraction of a second, uh, then the speed of light would just be one. And all those formulae with the speed of light in them, you could just leave it out. Of course, there are unit systems in which you do precisely choose the speed of light to be one. Um, so, in this sense, physics now fundamentally views length and time as related aspects of one combined thing, space-time. They're not two completely separate axes in the universe. Uh, now, at the heart of this is a geometry. And first, I've got to motivate you in terms of how we view regular Euclidean space. So this is just regular flat space. Ideally, we'd have a three-dimensional diagram, but I've used two dimensions. Uh, now, the idea of a space exists independent of putting coordinate systems on it. We can measure angles, so we can agree that if we're going to put a coordinate system down and we draw some x-axis somewhere, I should have drawn it at some arbitrary angle, actually. I shouldn't have drawn it horizontally. And then we can agree to draw the y-axis at right angles to that so we can measure angles. Now, here are two points, and they have a well-defined separation. You can measure that with a ruler. Uh, and regardless of how we put our axes down, assuming you've got your standard ruler, which, remember, we just defined the meter very carefully, you, you should be able to agree what the distance between those two points is. 
but if different people put their axes down at different orientations, then different people will get come out with different values of these projected coordinates along the x-axis and along the y-axis. Uh, but everybody should be able to agree that the total distance squared is given by Pythagoras. You take dx squared plus dy squared plus dz squared. Uh, and whilst different people might have different uh, values for these coordinates, because they oriented their axes in different ways, uh, they should all agree on the distance between those two points. Uh, oh, sorry, I've undershot my slide. So here I've just said that that distance squared by Pythagoras here is x squared plus y squared, but it's just as validly x prime squared plus y prime squared. Uh, any orientation of the coordinates is allowed. They're all as good as each other. What's universal is the distance. What's absolute, what's geometry, or metric geometry to be accurate, is the distance you calculate that. Okay, so now I want to come on to how we understand space-time in these terms. And the key point I want to get across is that uh, for me, I'm here I'm talking about Minkowski, that is flat space-time. A uh, later speaker is going to talk about matters general relativistic. Um, <coughs> so in Minkowski space, flat space-time, which the first approximation just means not worrying about gravity, uh, we talk not about just places, but events. That is something which happens at a place at a particular time. So this, notice, is really labeling in terms of coordinates. We, we've now labeled a point in the joint space-time with its where it happened, x, y, z, and when it happened, t. But the, now comes the key point, that the principle of special relativity uh, says that actually you have choice as to how you orient the axes, not just within x, y, z, but choice as to how you orient between the spatial axes and time. And this has everything to do with the moving observer. So, for example, uh, if, I measure, if I measure coordinates from the point of view of an observer moving at velocity v relative to this room, then their measured positions would be our measured positions minus the distance they've traveled up to time t. So you'd get x minus vt. That's, that's what you would expect to write down. Right? You just say, well, uh, wait, wait another minute. They've moved uh, a certain amount. That, that amount of time has elapsed. Uh, the moving observer has moved over to the right. Uh, so from their point of view, everything has shifted leftwards. Their x prime will be x minus vt. Now, I don't want to spend forever uh, recapitulating special relativity. Two complications uh, happen when you try to do this more accurately. Uh, first, you find there is a first, rather surprising uh, factor out front, which is 1 over 1 minus v squared over. I'll put the square speed of light in there, but of course, you're allowed to just say c equals 1. Uh, and the surprise, worked out by Einstein in 1905, uh, is that the transformation of time 
to get from our point of view to that of the moving observer is also non-trivial. So the, we have natural transformations of, the, of coordinates which honor a geometry but which don't uh, oh dear. Sorry, T minus Vx over C squared, not which mix space and time. So here's that slide. Uh, sorry, I stole this slide. It's got C's in it. Um, so here's one coordinate system corresponding, if you like, to, to our frame of reference in this room. Uh, and this would be the coordinate system uh, implied by these transformations for an observer moving relative to the room. Now, I've only allowed one spatial axis here for simplicity, and we've got just x there and t for time there. Uh, and uh, the geometry of this transformation is such that it amounts to drawing tilted, not rotated, but tilted or squashed, if you like, axes. And so the uh, whilst we, if here's an event here, uh, if we ask what's it, its space-time separation relative to an event at the origin here, uh, we would read off on our axes that it's that value of x and it's that value of t, uh, whereas the, the moving observer would read off, he has to tilt his reading lines corresponding to the tilt of his axes, he, he would read off that it's at this value of uh, x primed uh, and uh, this value of t primed. Uh, and of course, um, it looks as if we are right, and he's messing about with squashed axes, uh, but I would ask you to imagine just um, stretching this angle out, squashing these angles down, uh, and uh, then from that moving observer's point of view, his axes look rectangular, and ours look tilted the other way. Right? Neither of us is wrong. We're both right. They're two entirely equivalent points of view. Uh, these transformations are a symmetry of space-time. You really are allowed. It, it, the geometry says that it's entirely natural to do that. Uh, and so, just to ram it home, using these transformations, we have something which is independent of what our choice of the coordinates was, and it's this space-time interval, which is actually uh, here written in full dx squared, d space squared minus d time squared. Uh, but it's this which is the property of the space, space in the big sense of space-time. Uh, neither distance nor time has any separate absolute significance. So although we built this space-time, and just taking, you know, a mathematician would say space cross-time, cross but uh, <coughs> we built it sort of tacking time axis onto space, what you discover from the laws of physics is that what you've got is something much more profound. In just the same way, if you take a lot one dimension of ordinary space, and you can tack on a second dimension of space. Why? So you've gone from a line to a plane, but suddenly you realize a plane is much more than just a rectangular grid. It's got all those symmetries of rotation. 
geometrical properties. And space-time, likewise, is much more than just uh, uh, adding on a time axis. We really do have symmetry transformations that mix the new axis of time with the ones we already had of space. Right, so if we mix space and time, um, if we lose all notion of forwards and backwards, <laughs> that's a potential concern. And the answer is no. If we look at this space-time interval, and I map it out looking at displacements relative to an event at the origin, here's, here's my x-axis, x here's my time axis, uh, there are two favoured orientations such that the space-time interval is zero. And those, of course, correspond to the, the lines of propagation uh, of light, right? a, a light ray on the speed of light equal, set equal to one. Uh, starting out from this point, it, it can have x equals t. Of course, it can go backwards, x equals minus t. Uh, and of course, the, uh, there are paths to those uh, photon trajectories as well. So there are these clear separators where the space-time interval is zero. And any other coordinate system we take is still going to agree that all events along this line are at zero space-time interval from that event at the origin. They're all going to agree about that. Um, however much you transform using this, as long as you keep v less than c, and you can see that there are concerns if v reaches c. Then, uh, second class, everywhere in, I'll call it the space-like sectors of this diagram. That is, everywhere closer to the x-axis than to these separators uh, has space-time interval squared greater than zero. These are so-called space-like separations. And there is a real sense in which, uh, relative to this event here, uh, everywhere here is somewhere else. And then everywhere in the, the, the uh, cones above and below uh, has space-time interval squared less than zero. I know that's a negative number, but between friends, the square root of a negative number is just an imaginary number. That's all right. Uh, and regardless of your, what coordinate system you impose, everybody will agree uh, on the value of the space-time interval squared uh, between, say, this reference event here and uh, any particular event in, in this sector or in this sector. Uh, we'll get the same negative value of S squared. So there's now this absolute separation between these different sectors. Uh, which different, uh, an observer moving relative to the, the, the observer who has these coordinates x and t, uh, his natural axes will, his coordinate axes will be tilted over, but he will still completely agree about all of this classification in particular. The, the coordinate axes have moved, but these separators don't. They stay fixed. And here is this drawn in, in now two dimensions of space. Uh, and these separating lines now become rather uh, uh, 
a geometrically more elegant uh, as a cone. So if we start from this event here, uh, this is this light cone is the, the combination of all the trajectories a light ray could take coming out from uh, emitted at, at this event. Uh, likewise, we've got a past light cone of all the ways a light, light ray could come in to this event. And to be clear, that uh, for a light ray, we just get the, the surface of this cone. Uh, for anything moving slower than light, uh, that it, it's constrained to lie inside this cone. Uh, and indeed, it's more constrained than that, because if some, say, we a sound wave comes out from here, it starts propagating up to here. Uh, once it's reached here, uh, then it's cons constrained by a subsequent light cone. It can't get, so if I, you imagine the cone, th a cone like this drawn out from this point, uh, it will be stuck inside this now more restricted cone. So anything Propagating forwards from this event, or any forward cons future consequence of this event, has to lie inside this future light cone. And conversely, uh, any past event that had any in could have had any influence on what happened at this event has to lie in this past light cone. So the future from this event is all inside this light cone here. The past is all inside this one. Uh, the everything outside of this is quote elsewhere <laughs> unquote. Uh, you can and indeed uh, any we can go slightly further than that because you can ask well what happens if we use these transformations uh, here with, with free abandon and uh, uh, you could pick any event inside the, the future light cone and find a particular version of the transformations that would make this event in, within the future light cone uh, in your particular coordinate system appear to happen later but at the same place. You can choose frame of reference such that that's the case. Indeed, it's obvious what that frame of reference is. It's just an observer who travels from this event to that event. And you look at it from their point of view, with their origin as the reference point, it was the same place. Uh, similar comments, of course, about events in the past. Uh, any event that could have had a causal influence on this event, uh, there will be a frame of reference in which you would see that event as occurring at the same place, just an earlier time. <coughs> so there's no particularly unique favoring of, uh, of what it means for events to occur at the same place. Likewise, if you look here in the elsewhere sector, uh, the mirror image statements apply. Uh, any event outside the light cone has a frame of reference such that that event and this reference event here uh, appear to occur at the same time but different places. So the simultaneity now is a very broad church. Right? Every event outside this light cone 
has a frame of reference in which it appears to be simultaneous with this reference event. <laughs> you can make other choices of reference events and, and uh, the, the, the notion of simultaneity becomes positively profligate. So past and future, at least, are now very clearly separated, although notice uh, that they're not necessarily distinguished. Uh, this scheme is all based on, on checking the sine of s squared, uh, if you like, the, the, not the sine of s. Right, so notice the, the future, full future light cone is s squared less than zero, the past light cone is also s squared less than zero. And there's nothing in this scheme that tells you uh, how to distinguish between the past and future light cones. You could have reversed the time axis on me. I wouldn't be able to tell just by looking at these geometrical properties of space-time. Um, I'm running a bit slower than I expected. I'll, um, I'll just briefly say a word about locality of time. Um, the you said time is defined such that physics and the laws of physics look locally simple. Uh, but given that the laws of physics, uh, now, with some reservations about quantum mechanics, that the laws of classical physics, at least, uh, are local in their form, what, it, what that gives us is a locally consistent notion of time. Uh, but it does not mean that when, once we uh, how to say this right it does not mean that you can uh, necessarily synchronize all clocks consistently um, you can see this this clearly entails a non-trivial factor between two clocks, which can be compensated in offsets where people are. Uh, but you can construct scenarios in, in which you manage to expose that factor gamma there. So the classic one is put a clock in, a, in an aeroplane, fly it around the planet, and then compare the reading on that clock with the clock back on the ground. These two clocks have been far, have been move far apart with significant relative speed uh, and you can measure the, the mismatch in their elapsed reading. So we, we've generated a lo locally consistent clock of time but not a globally consistent one. Uh, but I wanted to say a few words about reversing time. And I'm sorry I've descended into the terminology of particle physics here. Uh, there is a theorem, what particle physicists call it a theorem, CPT. Uh, you'll see what those stand for in a minute. Uh, it says that if we reverse time, so we just flip the time axis, but we also invert space, so we reflect all the spatial axes, and that's being legal and decent about space-time, because now we've just inverted all the coordinates of space-time and do one more thing, namely interchange our views about what constitutes a particle and what constitutes an antiparticle, 
So the electron is viewed as being the new positron, and the positron is viewed as being the new electron. Then, by construction, the known laws of physics are unchanged. In fact, when you dig a bit deeper, um, the CPT theorem is almost an axiom because it's generally used as the, the definition of how you interchange particles and antiparticles. So, in the end, there's no, there's no escape from this theorem because uh, uh, of these three operations which jointly constitute an identity transformation, uh, uh, that one of them, C, is, is essentially defined uh, uh, such that this transformation will work. Um, but it does have some nice consequences because it means that, uh, for example, just reversing time alone, uh, if you look at that, if, if we inter interchange particles and antiparticles, uh, inverted space and inverted time would have done nothing. So doing just one of them is equivalent to, uh, well, to not doing both of the others, uh, but these are, are both um, idempotent operations. If you do, uh, they are own inverse. So, so that means inverting time is equivalent to interchanging particles and antiparticles and inverting space. And whilst inverting time, literally, is a little bit hard to do, uh, we certainly can com compare mirror image measurements uh, of, with particles and antiparticles. And there is a, an observable change in the, uh, the weak interactions. These are the weakest interactions in particle physics. Uh, but, for example, it, that difference is not enough to explain any of the observed asymmetry of our current universe with respect to either time reversal, the universe is expanding, not contracting, uh, or particle and antiparticle interchange. I mean, it, it appears to be, it appears that the, the matter content of the universe is overwhelmingly matter rather than antimatter, or a 50-50 mix. There are other contexts where you can use this rather neatly as a trick. So, for example, uh, in circumstances where inverting space is a good symmetry, uh, and that's most of physics except the weak interactions, then, then you can take P out of it and realize that then reversing time is equivalent to uh, interchanging particles and antiparticles. And uh, this is used quite routinely particle physics uh, to understand events in which, particularly where antiparticles are created. Uh, so T being equivalent to C means that antiparticles can be understood as particles traveling backwards in time. And particle physicists will very happily, well, let me give you two examples. Here's, here's a diagram that shows an electron. This is the electron being interacting with a photon and scattering that photon off. So that's a perfectly straightforward event, right? Electron and a photon collided, scattered, photon and electron come out. Here's a different take on this. An electron comes along. It scatters off a photon uh, and comes backwards in time. 
uh, and uh, there's the photon. And now, upset you by drawing the time axis there. So from the point of view of the particle physics, this is okay because uh, this electron moving backwards in time is completely equivalent to its antiparticle, the positron, moving forwards in time. Photons are their own antiparticle, so you're allowed to draw them either way you like. Uh, and now this is equivalent to an, an electron and a positron mutually annihilating, then out come two photons. It's a physically different process from this. Uh, but it runs much, much deeper than just a pictorial trick. The way you calculate the rate of this process is really to interpret it that way around, as this uh, backwards propagation in time. Now, you are I think, totally entitled to interpret it or just a convenient trick. But it's interesting that it's there. Um, it's a, uh, but it's, it's important to appreciate that al although uh, we do see at the level of the weak interactions a violation of time reversal symmetry, the level is weak. It does not account, as far as anyone has so far been able to work out, for the observed asymmetry in the universe. Uh, and in particular, the, the irreversibility that we see around us every day uh, has to come from viewing the initial conditions as special, or the way in which we view what's going on as special, uh, and not predominantly from the, the intrinsic laws of physics. The next speaker I know is going to pick up on that theme, which is why I've <laughs> just advertise it there. Uh, okay, thanks very much.